Friday, 6.30 a.m. I'm leafing through the New York Times when I come to a huge picture of the concrete being poured onto Woolman Rink. It's on the front page of the second section. This story just won't quit. 9.15 a.m. We meet with the city on the West Side Yards project. Almost everyone from yesterday's meeting is there, and we are joined by four city planners, including Rebecca Robinson and Con Howe, who are directly in charge of evaluating our project. Alex does the presentation, and he's very good. Mostly he emphasizes the things we know the city is going to like, the public parks, the easy access to the waterfront, the ways we've devised to move traffic in and out. The only time the density issue comes up, how tall the buildings will be, Alex just says we're still working it out. When it's over, we all agree it went very well. 10.30 a.m., I go back to my office for a meeting to discuss progress on construction at Trump Park, the condominium I'm building out of the steel shell of the Barbizon Plaza Hotel on Central Park South. It's an incredible location, and the building we're redoing will be a great success. The meeting includes Frank Williams, my architect on the project, Andrew Weiss, the project manager, and Blanche Sprague, an executive vice president who is in charge of sales. Frank, who is very soft-spoken, is a fine architect. Blanchette, my nickname for her, is a classic. She's got a mouth that won't quit, which is probably why she's so good at sales. I like to tell her that she must be a very tough woman to live with. The truth is, I get a great kick out of her. We start by talking about what color to use on the frames of the windows. Details like these make all the difference in the look and ambiance of a building. After almost a half hour, we finally agree on a light beige that will blend right into the color of the stone. I happen to like earth tones. They are richer and more elegant than primary colors. 11 a.m. Frank Williams leaves and we turn to a discussion of the demolition work at Trump Park. Andy tells me it's not finished, and that the contractor has just given us a $175,000 bill for extras. Extras are the costs a contractor adds to his original bid every time you request any change in the plan you initially agreed on. You have to be very rough and very tough with most contractors, or they'll take the shirt right off your back. I pick up the phone and dial the guy in charge of demolition at Trump Park. Steve, I say when I get him, this is Donald Trump. Listen, you've got to get your ass moving and get finished. You're behind. I want you to get personally involved in this. He starts to give me explanations, but I cut him off. I don't want to know. I just want you to get the job done and get out. And listen, Steve, you're killing me on these extras. I don't want you to deal with Andy anymore on the extras. I want you to deal with me personally. If you try screwing me on this job, you won't be getting a second chance. I'll never hire you again. My second concern is the laying of floors. I ask Andy for the number of our concrete guy. Okay, I say only half joking. I'm going to take my life in my hands now. Concrete guys can be extremely rough. I get the number two guy on the line. Look, I say to him, your boss wanted this contract very badly. I was set to give it to someone else, but he told me he'd do a great job. I walked to the site yesterday, and the patches you're making aren't level with the existing concrete. In some places, they're as much as a quarter inch off. The guy doesn't have any response, so I keep talking. Nobody has the potential to give you more work in the future than Trump. I'm going to be building when everyone else has gone bust, so do me a favor. Get this thing done right. This time the guy has a response. Every guy on the job is a pro, he says. We've given you our best men, Mr. Trump. Good, I say. Call me later and let me know how you're doing. 12 noon. Alan Greenberg calls to tell me that Holiday has gone ahead and enacted some poison pill provisions that will weigh the company down with debt and make it much less attractive as a takeover target. I'm not worried. No poison pill is going to keep me from going after Holiday Inn if that's what I decide I want to do. The market is still taking a drubbing. It was off 80 points yesterday, and it's down another 25 today. 
but Holiday is off only a point. Alan tells me that we've now bought almost 5% of the company. 12.15 p.m. Blanche stays on after Andy leaves to get me to choose a print advertisement for Trump Park. She shows me a half-dozen choices, and I don't like any of them. She is furious. Blanche wants to use a line drawing that shows the building and its panoramic views of Central Park. I like the idea of a line drawing, I tell her, but I don't like these. Also, I want a drawing that shows more of the building. Central Park is great, but in the end, I'm not selling a park. I'm selling a building and apartments. 12.30 p.m. Norma comes in, carrying a huge pile of forms I have to sign as part of my application for a Nevada gaming license. While I'm signing, Norma asks who I want to use as character references. I think for a minute and tell her to put down General Pete Dawkins, a great Army football hero, a terrific guy, and a good friend who's now an investment banker at Shearson. Benjamin Holloway, chairman and CEO of Equitable Real Estate Group, and Conrad Stevenson of Chase Manhattan Bank. Also, I tell Norma, put down John Cardinal O'Connor. 12.45 p.m. Ivana rings. She's in the office and wants me to go with her to see another school we're considering sending our daughter to next fall. Come on, Donald, she says. You haven't got anything else to do. Sometimes I think she really believes it. Actually, honey, I'm a little busy right now, I tell her. It doesn't work. Three minutes later, she's in my office, tugging at my sleeve. I finish signing the forms, and we go. 2.30 p.m. Bill Fugazi calls. I like to call him Willie the Fug, but he doesn't seem to appreciate it. Fugazi's business is limousines, but he really should have been a broker. The guy knows everyone. He's one of Lee Iacocca's best friends, and he's the person who recommended to the Cardinal that he meet with me to discuss real estate and get to know each other better. Fugazi asks me how dinner went last night at St. Pat's, and I tell him it was great. Before we hang up, we set a golf date for the weekend. 2.45 p.m. John D'Alessio, the construction manager on my triplex in Trump Tower, comes by to discuss the progress. He is carrying drawings. Except for the third floor, where the kids are, and the roof, where someday I'm going to build a park 68 stories up, I've gutted the whole apartment. In truth, I've gone a little overboard. First of all, I practically doubled the size of what I have by taking over the adjacent apartment. What I'm doing is about as close as you're going to get in the 20th century to the quality of Versailles. Everything is made to order. For example, we had the finest craftsmen in Italy hand-carve 27 solid marble columns for the living room. They arrived yesterday, and they're beautiful. I can afford the finest workmanship, and when it comes to my own apartment, I figure, why spare any expense? I want the best, whatever it takes. I look over the drawings with John and mark up a few changes. Then I ask him how the job is going. Not bad, he said. We're getting there. Well, push, John, I say. Push hard. 3.30 p.m. A Greek shipping magnet is on the line. How's the shipping business, I ask. He tells me he has a deal he'd like to discuss. He doesn't say what it is, but with certain people, you don't ask. If it wasn't big, I assume he wouldn't waste my time. We set a date. 4 p.m. I get a call from a guy who sells and leases corporate airplanes. I've been considering buying a G4, the jet that most corporations use. I tell the guy on the phone that I'm still interested in a plane, but that he should keep his eye out for a 727, which is what I really want. 4.30 p.m. Nick Ribis calls from Australia. He tells me things are going very well on our negotiations to be designated builder and operator of the world's largest casino. Nick fills me in on the details and says that we should know more by the following Monday. Sounds great, I tell him. Call me before you fly back. 4.45 p.m. Norma tells me that David Letterman, the talk show host, is downstairs in the atrium of Trump Tower, filming a day in the life of two out-of-town tourists. 
He'd like to know if they could stop up and say hello. I almost never stay up late enough to watch Letterman, but I know he's hot. I say, sure. Five minutes later, Letterman walks in, along with the cameraman, a couple of assistants, and a very nice-looking married couple from Louisville. We kid around a little, and I say what a great town I think Louisville is. Maybe we should all go in together on a deal there. Letterman asks me how much an apartment goes for in Trump Tower. I tell him that he might be able to pick up a one-bedroom for one million dollars. Tell me the truth, Letterman says after a few minutes of bantering. It's Friday afternoon. You get a call from us out of the blue. You tell us we can come up. Now you're standing here talking to us. You must not have much to do. Truthfully, David, I say, you're right. Absolutely nothing to do. Chapter 2. Trump Cards. The Elements of the Deal. My style of deal-making is quite simple and straightforward. I aim very high, and then I just keep pushing and pushing and pushing to get what I'm after. Sometimes I settle for less than I sought, but in most cases I still end up with what I want. More than anything else, I think deal-making is an ability you're born with. It's in the genes. I don't say that egotistically. It's not about being brilliant. It does take a certain intelligence, but mostly it's about instincts. You can take the smartest kid at Wharton, the one who gets straight A's and has a 170 IQ, and if he doesn't have the instincts, he'll never be a successful entrepreneur. Moreover, most people who do have the instincts will never recognize that they do, because they don't have the courage or the good fortune to discover their potential. Somewhere out there are a few men with more innate talent at golf than Jack Nicholas, or women with greater ability at tennis than Chris Everett or Martina Navratilova. But they will never lift a club or swing a racket and therefore will never find out how great they could have been. Instead, they'll be content to sit and watch stars perform on television. When I look back at the deals I've made and the ones I've lost or let pass, I see certain common elements. But unlike the real estate evangelists you see all over television these days, I can't promise you that by following the precepts I'm about to offer you'll become a millionaire overnight. Unfortunately, life rarely works that way, and most people who try to get rich quick end up going broke instead. As for those among you who do have the genes, who do have the instincts, and who could be highly successful, well, I still hope you won't follow my advice because that would just make it a much tougher world for me. Think big. I like thinking big. I always have. To me, it's very simple. If you're going to be thinking anyway, you might as well think big. Most people think small, because most people are afraid of success, afraid of making decisions, afraid of winning. And that gives people like me a great advantage. My father built low-income and middle-income buildings in Brooklyn and Queens. But even then, I gravitated to the best location. When I was working in Queens, I always wanted Forest Hills. And as I grew older, and perhaps wiser, I realized that Forest Hills was great. But Forest Hills isn't Fifth Avenue. And so I began to look toward Manhattan. Because at a very early age, I had a true sense of what I wanted to do. I wasn't satisfied just to earn a good living. I was looking to make a statement. I was out to build something monumental, something worth a big effort. Plenty of other people could buy and sell little brownstones or build cookie-cutter red brick buildings. What attracted me was the challenge of building a spectacular development on almost 100 acres by the river on the west side of Manhattan or creating a huge new hotel next to Grand Central Station at Park Avenue and 42nd Street. The same sort of challenge is what attracted me to Atlantic City. It's nice to build a successful hotel. It's a lot better to build a hotel attached to a huge casino that can earn 50 times what you'd ever earn renting hotel rooms. You're talking a whole different order of magnitude. One of the keys to thinking big is total focus. I think of it almost as a controlled neurosis, which is a quality I've noticed in many highly successful entrepreneurs. They're obsessive, they're driven, they're single-minded, and sometimes they're almost maniacal.
but it's all channeled into their work. Where other people are paralyzed by neurosis, the people I'm talking about are actually helped by it. I don't say this trait leads to a happier life or a better life, but it's great when it comes to getting what you want. This is particularly true in New York real estate, where you are dealing with some of the sharpest, toughest, and most vicious people in the world. I happen to love to go up against these guys, and I love to beat them. Protect the downside, and the upside will take care of itself. People think I'm a gambler. I've never gambled in my life. To me, a gambler is someone who plays slot machines. I prefer to own slot machines. It's a very good business being the house. It's been said that I believe in the power of positive thinking. In fact, I believe in the power of negative thinking. I happen to be very conservative in business. I always go into the deal anticipating the worst. If you plan for the worst, if you can live with the worst, the good will always take care of itself. The only time in my life I didn't follow that rule was with the USFL. I bought a losing team in a losing league on a long shot. It almost worked, through our antitrust suit, but when it didn't, I had no fallback. The point is that you can't be too greedy. If you go for a home run on every pitch, you're also going to strike out a lot. I try never to leave myself too exposed, even if it means sometimes settling for a triple, a double, or even, on rare occasions, a single. One of the best examples I can give is my experience in Atlantic City. Several years ago, I managed to piece together an incredible sight on the boardwalk. The individual deals I made for parcels were contingent on my being able to put together the whole site. Until I achieved that, I didn't have to put up very much money at all. Once I assembled the site, I didn't rush to start construction. That meant I had to pay the carrying charges for a longer period. But before I spent hundreds of millions of dollars and several years on construction, I wanted to make sure I got my gaming license. I lost time but I also kept my exposure much lower. When I got my licensing on the boardwalk site, Holiday Inns came along and offered to be my partner. Some people said, you don't need them. I'll give up 50% of your profits. But Holiday Inns also offered to pay back the money I already had in the deal, to finance all the construction, and to guarantee me against losses for five years. My choice was whether to keep all the risk myself and own 100% of the casino, or settle for a 50% stake without putting up a dime. It was an easy decision. Baron Hilton, by contrast, took a bolder approach when he built his casino in Atlantic City. In order to get open as quickly as possible, he filed for a license and began construction on a $400 million facility at the same time. But then, two months before the hotel was scheduled to open, Hilton was denied a license. He ended up selling to me at the last minute, under a lot of pressure, and without a lot of other options. I renamed the facility Trump's Castle, and it is now one of the most successful hotel casinos anywhere in the world. Maximize your options. I also protect myself by being flexible. I never get too attached to one deal or one approach. For starters, I keep a lot of balls in the air because most deals fall out, no matter how promising they seem at first. In addition, once I've made a deal, I always come up with at least a half dozen approaches to making it work, because anything can happen, even to the best laid plans. For example, if I hadn't gotten the approvals I wanted for Trump Tower, I could always have built an office tower and done just fine. If I'd been turned down for licensing in Atlantic City, I could have sold the site I'd assembled to another casino operator at a good profit. Perhaps the best example I can give is the first deal I made in Manhattan. I got an option to purchase the Penn Central Rail Yards at West 34th Street. My original proposal was to build middle-income housing on the site with government financing. Unfortunately, the city began to have financial problems and money for public housing suddenly dried up. I didn't spend a lot of time feeling sorry for myself. Instead, I switched to my second option and began promoting the site as ideal for a convention center. 
It took two years of pushing and promoting, but ultimately the city did designate my site for the convention center, and that's where it was built. Of course, if they hadn't chosen my site, I would have come up with a third approach. Know your market. Some people have a sense of the market, and some people don't. Steven Spielberg has it. Lee Iacocca of Chrysler has it. And so does Judith Krantz in her way. Woody Allen has it. For the audience he cares about reaching. And so does Sylvester Stallone at the other end of the spectrum. Some people criticize Stallone. But you've got to give him credit. I mean, here's a man who is just 41 years old, and he's already created two of the all-time great characters, Rocky and Rambo. To me, he's a diamond-in-the-rough type, a genius purely by instinct. He knows what the public wants, and he delivers it. I like to think that I have that instinct. That's why I don't hire a lot of number crunchers, and I don't trust fancy marketing surveys. I do my own surveys and draw my own conclusions. I'm a great believer in asking everyone for an opinion before I make a decision. It's a natural reflex. If I'm thinking of buying a piece of property, I'll ask the people who live nearby about the area, what they think of the schools and the crime and the shops. When I'm in another city and I take a cab, I'll always make it a point to ask the cab driver questions. I ask and I ask and I ask until I begin to get a gut feeling about something. And that's when I make a decision. I have learned much more from conducting my own random surveys than I could ever have learned from the greatest of consulting firms. They send a crew of people down from Boston, rent a room in New York, and charge you $100,000 for a lengthy study. In the end, it has no conclusion and takes so long to complete that if the deal you were considering was a good one, it will be long gone. The other people I don't take too seriously are the critics, except when they stand in the way of my projects. In my opinion, they mostly write to impress each other, and they're just as swayed by fashions as anyone else. One week it's spare glass towers they are praising to the skies, the next week they've rediscovered old, and they're celebrating detail and ornamentation. What very few of them have is any feeling for what the public wants, which is why, if these critics ever tried to become developers, they'd be terrible failures. Trump Tower is a building the critics were skeptical about before it was built, but which the public obviously liked. I'm not talking about the sort of person who inherited money 175 years ago and lives on 84th Street and Park Avenue. I'm talking about the wealthy Italian with the beautiful wife and the red Ferrari. Those people, the audience I was after, came to Trump Tower in droves. The funny thing about Trump Tower is that we ended up getting great architectural reviews. The critics didn't want to review it well because it stood for a lot of things they didn't like at the time. But in the end, it was such a gorgeous building that they had no choice but to say so. I always follow my own instincts, but I'm not going to kid you. It's also nice to get good reviews. Use your leverage. The worst thing you can possibly do in a deal is seem desperate to make it. That makes the other guy smell blood, and then you're dead. The best thing you can do is deal from strength and leverage is the biggest strength you can have. Leverage is having something the other guy wants, or better yet, needs, or best of all, simply can't do without. Unfortunately, that isn't always the case, which is why leverage often requires imagination and salesmanship. In other words, you have to convince the other guy it's in his interest to make the deal. Back in 1974, in an effort to get the city to approve my deal to buy the Commodore Hotel on East 42nd Street, I convinced its owners to go public with the fact that they were planning to close down the hotel. After they made the announcement, I wasn't shy about pointing out to everyone in the city what a disaster a boarded-up hotel would be for the Grand Central Area, and for the entire city. When the Board of Holiday Inns was considering whether to enter into a partnership with me in Atlantic City, they were attracted to my site because they believed my construction was farther along than that of any other potential partner. In reality, I wasn't that far along. 
but I did everything I could, short of going to work at the site myself, to assure them that my casino was practically finished. My leverage came from confirming an impression they were already predisposed to believe. When I bought the West Side Rail Yards, I didn't name the project Television City by accident, and I didn't choose the name because I think it's pretty. I did it to make a point. Keeping the television networks in New York, and NBC in particular, is something the city very much wants to do. Losing a network to New Jersey would be a psychological and economic disaster. Leverage. Don't make deals without it. Enhance your location. Perhaps the most misunderstood concept in all of real estate is that the key to success is location, location, location. Usually that's said by people who don't know what they're talking about. First of all, you don't necessarily need the best location. What you need is the best deal. Just as you can create leverage, you can enhance a location through promotion and through psychology. When you have 57th Street and 5th Avenue as your location, as I did with Trump Tower, you need less promotion. But even there, I took it a step further by promoting Trump Tower as something almost larger than life. By contrast, Museum Tower, two blocks away and built above the Museum of Modern Art, wasn't marketed well, never achieved an aura, and didn't command nearly the prices we did at Trump Tower. Location also has a lot to do with fashion. You can take a mediocre location and turn it into something considerably better just by attracting the right people. After Trump Tower, I built Trump Plaza on a site at 3rd Avenue and 61st Street that I was able to purchase very inexpensively. The truth is that 3rd Avenue simply didn't compare with 5th Avenue as a location. But Trump Tower had given a value to the Trump name and I built a very striking building on 3rd Avenue. Suddenly, we were able to command premium prices from very wealthy and successful people who might have chosen Trump Tower if the best apartments hadn't been sold out. Today, 3rd Avenue is a very prestigious place to live, and Trump Plaza is a great success. My point is that the real money isn't made in real estate by spending the top dollar to buy the best location. You can get killed doing that just as you can get killed by buying a bad location, even for a low price. What you should never do is pay too much, even if that means walking away from a very good site, which is all a more sophisticated way of looking at location. Get the word out. You can have the most wonderful product in the world, but if people don't know about it, it's not going to be worth much. There are singers in the world with voices as good as Frank Sinatra's, but they're singing in their garages because no one has ever heard of them. You need to generate interest, and you need to create excitement. One way is to hire public relations people and pay them a lot of money to sell whatever you've got. But to me, that's like hiring outside consultants to study a market. It's never as good as doing it yourself. One thing I've learned about the press is that they're always hungry for a good story and the more sensational, the better. It's in the nature of the job, and I understand that. The point is that if you are a little different or a little outrageous, or if you do things that are bold or controversial, the press is going to write about you. I've always done things a little differently. I don't mind controversy, and my deals tend to be somewhat ambitious. Also, I achieved a lot when I was very young, and I chose to live in a certain style. The result is that the press has always wanted to write about me. I'm not saying that they necessarily like me. Sometimes they write positively, and sometimes they write negatively. But from a pure business point of view, the benefits of being written about have far outweighed the drawbacks. It's really quite simple. If I take a full-page ad in the New York Times to publicize a project, it might cost $40,000. And in any case, people tend to be skeptical about advertising. But if the New York Times writes even a moderately positive one-column story about one of my deals, it doesn't cost me anything, and it's worth a lot more than $40,000. The funny thing is that even a critical story, which may be hurtful personally, can be very valuable to your business. Television City is a perfect example. 
When I bought the land in 1985, many people, even those on the west side, didn't realize that those 100 acres existed. Then I announced I was going to build the world's tallest building on the site. Instantly, it became a media event. The New York Times put it on the front page. Dan Rather announced it on the evening news. And George Will wrote a column about it in Newsweek. Every architecture critic had an opinion. And so did a lot of editorial writers. Not all of them liked the idea of the world's tallest building. But the point is that we got a lot of attention. And that alone creates value. The other thing I do when I talk with reporters is to be straight. I try not to deceive them or to be defensive, because those are precisely the ways most people get themselves into trouble with the press. Instead, when a reporter asks me a tough question, I try to frame a positive answer, even if that means shifting the ground. For example, if someone asks me what negative effects the world's tallest building might have on the west side, I turn the tables and talk about how New Yorkers deserve the world's tallest building and what a boost it will give the city to have that honor again. When a reporter asks why I build only for the rich, I note that the rich aren't the only ones who benefit from my buildings. I explain that I put thousands of people to work who might otherwise be collecting unemployment, and that I add to the city's tax base every time I build a new project. I also point out that buildings like Trump Tower have helped spark New York's renaissance. The final key to the way I promote is bravado. I play to people's fantasies. People may not always think big themselves, but they can still get very excited by those who do. That's why a little hyperbole never hurts. People want to believe that something is the biggest and the greatest and the most spectacular. I call it truthful hyperbole. It's an innocent form of exaggeration and a very effective form of promotion. Fight back. Much as it pays to emphasize the positive, there are times when the only choice is confrontation. In most cases, I'm very easy to get along with. I'm very good to people who are good to me. But when people treat me badly or unfairly or try to take advantage of me, my general attitude all my life has been to fight back very hard. The risk is that you'll make a bad situation worse, and I certainly don't recommend this approach to everyone. But my experience is that if you're fighting for something you believe in, even if it means alienating some people along the way, things usually work out for the best in the end. When the city unfairly denied me, on Trump Tower, the standard tax break every developer had been getting, I fought them in six different courts. It cost me a lot of money. I was considered highly likely to lose. And people told me it was a no-win situation politically. I would have considered it worth the effort regardless of the outcome. In this case, I won, which made it even better. When Holiday Inns, once my partners at the Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, ran a casino that consistently performed among the bottom 50% of casinos in town, I fought them very hard and they finally sold out their share to me. Then I began to think about trying to take over the Holiday Inns company altogether. Even if I never went on the offensive, there are a lot of people gunning for me now. One of the problems when you become successful is that jealousy and envy inevitably follow. There are people, I categorize them as life's losers, who get their sense of accomplishment and achievement from trying to stop others. As far as I'm concerned, if they had any real ability, they wouldn't be fighting me. They'd be doing something constructive themselves. Deliver the goods. You can't con people, at least not for long. You can create excitement, you can do wonderful promotion and get all kinds of press, and you can throw in a little hyperbole. But if you don't deliver the goods, people will eventually catch on. I think of Jimmy Carter. After he lost the election to Ronald Reagan, Carter came to see me in my office. He told me he was seeking contributions to the Jimmy Carter Library. I asked how much he had in mind. And he said, Donald, I would be very appreciative if you contributed $5 million. I was dumbfounded. I didn't even answer him. But that experience also taught me something. Until then, I'd never understood how Jimmy Carter became president. 
The answer is that as poorly qualified as he was for the job, Jimmy Carter had the nerve, the guts, the balls to ask for something extraordinary. That ability, above all, helped him get elected president. But then, of course, the American people caught on pretty quickly that Carter couldn't do the job, and he lost in a landslide when he ran for re-election. Ronald Reagan is another example. He is so smooth and so effective a performer that he completely won over the American people. Only now, nearly seven years later, are people beginning to question whether there's anything beneath that smile. I see the same thing in my business, which is full of people who talk a good game, but don't deliver. When Trump Tower became successful, a lot of developers got the idea of imitating our atrium, and they ordered their architects to come up with a design. The drawings would come back, and they would start costing out the job. What they discovered is that the bronze escalators were going to cost a million dollars extra, and the waterfall was going to cost two million dollars, and the marble was going to cost many millions more. They saw that it all added up to many millions of dollars, and all of a sudden these people with these great ambitions would decide, well, let's forget about the atrium. The dollar always talks in the end. I'm lucky because I work in a very, very special niche, at the top of the market, and I can afford to spend top dollar to build the best. I promoted the hell out of Trump Tower, but I also had a great product to promote. Contain the costs. I believe in spending what you have to, but I also believe in not spending more than you should. When I was building low-income housing, the most important thing was to get it built quickly, inexpensively, and adequately, so you could rent it out and make a few bucks. That's when I learned to be cost-conscious. I never threw money around. I learned from my father that every penny counts, because before too long, your pennies turn into dollars. To this day, if I feel a contractor is overcharging me, I'll pick up the phone, even if it's only for $5,000 or $10,000, and I'll complain. People say to me, what are you bothering for over a few bucks? My answer is that the day I can't pick up the telephone and make a 25-cent call to save $10,000 is the day I'm going to close up shop. The point is that you can dream great dreams, but they'll never amount to much if you can't turn them into reality at a reasonable cost. At the time I built Trump Plaza in Atlantic City, banks were reluctant to finance new construction at all because almost every casino up to then had experienced tens of millions of dollars in cost overruns. We brought Trump Plaza in on budget and on time. As a result, we were able to open for Memorial Day weekend, the start of the high season. By contrast, Bob Guccione of Penthouse has been trying for the past seven years to build a casino on the boardwalk site right next to ours. All he has to show for his efforts is a rusting half-built frame and tens of millions of dollars in lost revenues and squandered carrying costs. Even small jobs can get out of control if you're not attentive. For nearly seven years, I watched from the window of my office as the city tried to rebuild Woolman Rink in Central Park. At the end of that time, millions of dollars had been wasted, and the job was farther from being completed than when the work began. They were all set to rip out the concrete and start over, when I finally couldn't stand it anymore, and I offered to do it myself. The job took four months to complete, at a fraction of the city's cost. Have fun! I don't kid myself. Life is very fragile, and success doesn't change that. If anything, success makes it more fragile. Anything can change, without warning. And that's why I try not to take any of what's happened too seriously. Money was never a big motivation for me, except as a way to keep score. The real excitement is playing the game. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about what I should have done differently or what's going to happen next. If you ask me exactly what the deals I'm about to describe all led up to in the end, I'm not sure I have a very good answer, except that I've had a very good time making them. Chapter 3. Growing Up The most important influence on me, growing up, was my father, Fred Trump. I learned a lot from him. 
I learned about toughness in a very tough business. I learned about motivating people, and I learned about competence and efficiency. Get in, get it done, get it done right, and get out. At the same time, I learned very early on that I didn't want to be in the business my father was in. He did very well building rent-controlled and rent-stabilized housing in Queens and Brooklyn, but it was a very tough way to make a buck. I wanted to try something grander, more glamorous, and more exciting. I also realized that if I ever wanted to be known as more than Fred Trump's son, I was eventually going to have to go out and make my own mark. I'm fortunate that my father was content to stay with what he knew and did so well. That left me free to make my mark in Manhattan. Even so, I never forgot the lessons I learned at my father's side. His story is classic Horatio Alger. Fred Trump was born in New Jersey in 1905. His father, who came here from Sweden as a child, owned a moderately successful restaurant. But he was also a hard liver and a hard drinker, and he died when my father was 11 years old. My father's mother, Elizabeth, went to work as a seamstress to support her three children. The oldest, also named Elizabeth, was 16 at the time, and the youngest, John, was nine. My father was the middle child but the first son, and he became the man of the house. Almost immediately, he began taking odd jobs, everything from deliveries for a local fruit store to shining shoes to hauling lumber on a construction site. Construction always interested him, and during high school he began taking night classes in carpentry, plan reading, and estimating, figuring that if he learned a trade, he'd always be able to make a living. By the age of 16, he'd built his first structure, a two-car frame garage for a neighbor. Middle-class people were just beginning to buy cars. Few homes had attached garages, and my father was soon able to establish a very good new business building prefabricated garages for $50 apiece. He graduated from high school in 1922, and with a family to support, he couldn't even consider college. Instead, he went to work as a carpenter's helper for a home builder in Queens. He was better with his hands than most, but he also had some other advantages. For starters, he was just a very smart guy. Even to this day, he can add five columns of numbers in his head and keep them all straight. Between his night courses and his basic common sense, he was able to show the other carpenters, most of whom had no education at all, shortcuts, such as how to frame a rafter with a steel square. In addition, my father was always very focused and very ambitious. Most of his co-workers were happy just to have a job. My father not only wanted to work, he also wanted to do well and to get ahead. Finally, my father just plain loved working. From as early as I can remember, my father would say to me, the most important thing in life is to love what you're doing, because that's the only way you'll ever be really good at it. One year after he got out of high school, my father built his first home, a one-family house in Woodhaven, Queens. It cost a little less than $5,000 to build, and he sold it for $7,500. He called his company Elizabeth Trump and Son, because at the time, he wasn't of age, and his mother had to sign all his legal documents and checks. As soon as he sold his first house, he used the profit to build another, and then another and another, in working-class Queens communities like Woodhaven, Hollis, and Queens Village. For working people who'd spent their lives in small, crowded apartments, my father offered a whole new lifestyle, modestly priced suburban-style brick houses that were gobbled up as fast as he could build them. Instinctively, my father began to think bigger. By 1929, aiming at a more affluent market, he started building much larger homes. Instead of tiny brick houses, he put up three-story colonials. Tudors and Victorians in a section of Queens that ultimately became known as Jamaica Estates, and where eventually he built a home for our family. When the Depression hit and the housing market fell off, my father turned his attention to other businesses. He bought a bankrupt mortgage servicing company and sold it at a profit a year later. Next, he built a self-service supermarket in Woodhaven, one of the first of its kind. 
all the local tradesmen, butcher, tailor, shoemaker, rented concessions in the space, and the convenience of having everything available under one roof made the operation an immediate success. Within a year, however, eager to return to building, my father sold out to King Cullen for a large profit. By 1934, the Depression was finally beginning to ease, but money was still tight, and so my father decided to go back to building lower-priced homes. This time he chose the depressed Flatbush area of Brooklyn, where land was cheap and he sensed there was a lot of room for growth. Once again, his instincts were right. In three weeks, he sold 78 homes, and during the next dozen years, he built 2,500 more throughout Queens and Brooklyn. He was becoming very successful. In 1936, my father married my wonderful mother, Mary McLeod, and they began a family. My father's success also made it possible for him to give to his younger brother something he'd missed himself, a college education. With my father's help, my uncle, John Trump, went to college, got his Ph.D. from MIT, and eventually became a full professor of physics and one of the country's great scientists. Perhaps because my father never got a college degree himself, he continued to view people who had one with a respect that bordered on all. In most cases, they didn't deserve it. My father could run circles around most academics, and he would have done very well in college, if he'd been able to go. We had a very traditional family. My father was the power and the breadwinner, and my mother was the perfect housewife. That didn't mean she sat around playing bridge and talking on the phone. There were five children in all. And besides taking care of us, she cooked and cleaned and darned socks and did charity work at the local hospital. We lived in a large house, but we never thought of ourselves as rich kids. We were brought up to know the value of a dollar and to appreciate the importance of hard work. Our family was always very close, and to this day, they are my closest friends. My parents had no pretensions. My father still works out of a small, modest back office on Avenue Z in the Sheepshead Bay section of Brooklyn, in a building he put up in 1948. It simply never occurred to him to move. My sister Mary Ann was the firstborn, and when she graduated from Mount Holyoke College, she followed my mother's path at first, marrying and staying at home while her son grew up, but she also inherited a lot of my father's drive and ambition. And when her son David became a teenager, she went back to school to study law. She graduated with honors, began with a private firm, worked for five years as a federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and four years ago became a federal judge. Mary Ann is really something. My younger sister Elizabeth is kind and bright, but less ambitious, and she works at Chase Manhattan Bank in Manhattan. My older brother, Freddie, the first son, had perhaps the hardest time in our family. My father is a wonderful man, but he is also very much a business guy and strong and tough as hell. My brother was just the opposite, handsome as he could be. He loved parties and had a great, warm personality and a real zest for life. He didn't have an enemy in the world. Naturally, my father very much wanted his oldest son in the business. But unfortunately, business just wasn't for Freddie. He went to work with my father reluctantly, and he never had a feel for real estate. He wasn't the kind of guy who could stand up to a killer contractor or negotiate with a rough supplier. Because my father was so strong, there were inevitably confrontations between the two of them. In most cases, Freddie came out on the short end. Eventually, it became clear to all of us that it wasn't working and Freddie went off to pursue what he loved most, flying airplanes. He moved to Florida, became a professional pilot, and flew for TWA. He also loved fishing and boating. Freddie was probably happiest during that period in his life, and yet I can remember saying to him, even though I was eight years younger, Come on, Freddie, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. I regret now that I ever said that. Perhaps I was just too young to realize that it was irrelevant what my father or I thought about what Freddie was doing. What mattered was that he enjoyed it. 
Along the way, I think Freddy became discouraged, and he started to drink, and that led to a downward spiral. At the age of 43, he died. It's very sad, because he was a wonderful guy who never quite found himself. In many ways, he had it all. But the pressures of our particular family were not for him. I only wish I had realized this sooner. Fortunately for me, I was drawn to business very early, and I was never intimidated by my father, the way most people were. I stood up to him, and he respected that. We had a relationship that was almost businesslike. I sometimes wonder if we'd have gotten along so well if I hadn't been as business-oriented as I am. Even in elementary school, I was a very assertive, aggressive kid. In the second grade, I actually gave a teacher a black eye. I punched my music teacher, because I didn't think he knew anything about music, and I almost got expelled. I'm not proud of that, but it's clear evidence that even early on I had a tendency to stand up and make my opinions known in a very forceful way. The difference now is that I like to use my brain instead of my fists. I was always something of a leader in my neighborhood, much the way it is today. People either liked me a lot, or they didn't like me at all. In my own crowd, I was very well-liked, and I tended to be the kid that others followed. As an adolescent, I was mostly interested in creating mischief. Because for some reason, I liked to stir things up, and I liked to test people. I'd throw water balloons, shoot spitballs, and make a ruckus in the schoolyard and at birthday parties. It wasn't malicious so much as it was aggressive. My brother, Robert, likes to tell the story of the time when it became clear to him where I was headed. Robert is two years younger than I am, and we have always been very close, although he is much quieter and more easygoing than I am. One day, we were in the playroom of our house, building with blocks. I wanted to build a very tall building, but it turned out that I didn't have enough blocks. I asked Robert if I could borrow some of his, and he said, Okay, but you have to give them back when you're done. I ended up using all of my blocks and then all of his, and when I was done, I created a beautiful building. I liked it so much that I glued the whole thing together. And that was the end of Robert's blocks. When I turned 13, my father decided to send me to a military school, assuming that a little military training might be good for me. I wasn't thrilled about the idea but it turned out he was right. Beginning in the eighth grade, I went to the New York Military Academy in upstate New York. I stayed through my senior year, and along the way I learned a lot about discipline and about channeling my aggression into achievement. In my senior year, I was appointed a captain of the cadets. There was one teacher in particular who had a big impact on me. Theodore Dobius was a former drill sergeant in the Marines. And physically, he was very tough and very rough. The kind of guy who could slam into a goalpost wearing a football helmet and break the post, rather than his head. He didn't take any back talk from anyone, least of all from kids who came from privileged backgrounds. If you stepped out of line, Dobius smacked you, and he smacked you hard. Very quickly, I realized that I wasn't going to make it with this guy by trying to take him on physically. A few less fortunate kids chose that route, and they ended up getting stopped. Most of my classmates took the opposite approach and became nebishes. They never challenged Obius about anything. I took a third route, which was to use my head to get around the guy. I figured out what it would take to get Dobius on my side. In a way, I finessed him. It helped that I was a good athlete, since he was the baseball coach and I was the captain of the team but I also learned how to play him. What I did basically was to convey that I respected his authority, but that he didn't intimidate me. It was a delicate balance. Like so many strong guys, Dobies had a tendency to go for the jugular if he smelled weakness. On the other hand, if he sensed strength, but you didn't try to undermine him, he treated you like a man. From the time I figured that out, and it was more an instinct than a conscious thought, we got along great. I was a good enough student at the academy, although I can't say I ever worked very hard. I was lucky that it came relatively easy to me, 
because I was never all that interested in schoolwork. I understood early on that the whole academic thing was only a preliminary to the main event, which was going to be whatever I did after I graduated from college. Almost from the time I could walk, I'd been going to construction sites with my father. Robert and I would tag along and spend our time hunting for empty soda bottles, which we'd take to the store for deposit money. As a teenager, when I came home from school for vacation, I followed my father around to learn about the business close up, dealing with contractors or visiting buildings or negotiating for a new site. You made it in my father's business, rent-controlled and rent-stabilized buildings, by being very tough and very relentless. To turn a profit, you had to keep your costs down, and my father was always very price-conscious. He'd negotiate just as hard with a supplier of mops and floor wax as he would with the general contractor for the larger items on a project. One advantage my father had was that he knew what everything cost. No one could put anything over on him. If you know, for example, that a plumbing job is going to cost the contractor $400,000, then you know how far you can push the guy. You're not going to try to negotiate him down to $300,000 because that's just going to put him out of business. But you're also not going to let him talk you into $600,000. The other way my father got contractors to work for a good price was by selling them on his reliability. He'd offer a low price for a job, but then he'd say, Look, with me, you get paid, and you get paid on time. And with someone else, who knows if you ever see your money? He'd also point out that with him, they'd get in and out quickly and on to the next job. And finally, because he was always building, he could hold out the promise of plenty of future work. His arguments were usually compelling. My father was also an unbelievably demanding taskmaster. Every morning at six, he'd be there at the site, and he would just pound and pound and pound. It was almost a one-man show. If a guy wasn't doing his job the way my father thought it should be done, and I mean any job, because he could do them all, he'd jump in and take over. It was always amusing to watch a certain scenario repeat itself. My father would start a building in, say, Flatbush, at the same time that two competitors began putting up their own buildings nearby. Invariably, my father would finish his building three or four months before his competitors did. His building would also always be a little better looking than the other two, with a nicer, more spacious lobby and larger rooms in the apartments themselves. He'd rent them out quickly, at a time when it wasn't so easy to rent. Eventually, one or both of his competitors would go bankrupt before they'd finish their buildings, and my father would step in and buy them out. I saw this happen over and over. In 1949, when I was just three years old, my father began building Shore Haven Apartments, the first of several large apartment complexes that eventually made him one of the biggest landlords in New York's outer boroughs. Because he built the projects so efficiently, my father did exceptionally well with them. At the time, the government was still in the business of financing lower- and middle-income housing. To build Shore Haven, for example, my father got a loan of $10.3 million from the Federal Housing Administration, FHA. The loan was based on what the agency projected as a fair and reasonable cost for the project, including a builder's profit of 7.5%. By pushing his contractors very hard and negotiating hard with his suppliers, my father was able to bring the project in ahead of schedule and almost $1 million under budget. The term Windfall profits was actually coined to describe what my father and some others managed to earn through hard work and competence. Eventually, such profits were disallowed. In the meantime, however, my father put up thousands of good quality lower and middle income apartments of the sort that no one is building today because it's not profitable and government subsidies have been eliminated. To this day, the Trump buildings in Queens and Brooklyn are considered among the best reasonably priced places to live in New York. After I graduated from New York Military Academy in 1964, I flirted briefly with the idea of attending film school at the University of Southern California. 
I was attracted to the glamour of the movies, and I admired guys like Sam Goldwyn, Daryl Zanuck, and most of all, Louis B. Mayer, whom I considered great showman. But in the end, I decided real estate was a much better business.